This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to a special discussion on talking politics and religion without killing each other. I'm your host, Corey Nathan, and I am so grateful, especially in times like now, to have a place to talk about really important stuff with people who are in the thick of it. Yeah, it's hard sometimes to be grateful in, in troubled times, but that's when it's perhaps most important to be thankful for things, if nothing else, for people that we're in relationship with and community with. It's an honor to announce that our program is part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts that examines what's broken in our democracy and how we can work together to fix it. And remember to subscribe and do all, I'm not gonna go into that stuff today. Today just feels like a different day, but you know where to find us uh, if you need us. And uh, all of it helps get the word out so more people can participate in the conversation like the very important one we're having today. We are so glad to be joined by Dr. Roberto Che Espinosa and Quinn Joy Bacon. You probably remember Dr. Roberto from when he was on this program a few weeks ago. Dr. E, Dr. Roberto Che Espinosa, PhD, has been described in a myriad of ways, a scholar activist, scholar leader, thought leader, teacher, public theologian, ethicist, poet of moral reason, and word artist. Dr. E is the founder of Activist. By the way, I call him Dr. E. I don't know. Maybe it's like my jersey in me. It works. Yes. Okay. All right. Cool. Um, uh, Dr. E is a founder of the Activist Theology Project, which is now known as Our Collective Becoming. Process of, we're in the process of rebranding and everything. So it's Activist Theology, which is in the process of becoming Our Collective Becoming. Yes. Is that a better yes. way to put it? Yes. All right. Cool. Yes. That is a national-based collaborative project that seeks to work with the dominant culture and produces curriculum at the intersection of scholarship and activism. Dr. Espinosa was named one of 10 faith leaders to watch by the Center for American Progress in 2018. As a scholar activist, Dr. Espinosa is committed to translating theory to action. And Dr. E writes and creates academic and other valuable resources, such as in the di digital realm. He is the author of Activist Theology, which came out in 2019. And his latest book, which we talked about on the show a few weeks ago, yep. Body Becoming, came out last year. And Quinn Joy Bacon is a poet, organizer, neighbor, cook, which I'm especially looking forward to hopefully enjoying sometime soon. She is a trans femme abolitionist currently studying at Vanderbilt Divinity School, seeking an MDiv with concentrations in religion, gender, and sexuality in prison and carceral studies. At Vanderbilt, they are a member of the queer faith and policy cohort through the Carpenter Program. Quinn credits her perspective to organizing and working around abolition, housing, mental health, public education, mutual aid, and their formal informal studies. Broadly, Quinn is interested in abolitionist trans liberation theologies and ways church resources can aid freedom struggles. Quinn is also pursuing ordination in the PCUSA. Now that's a lot. So we're going to talk about all of that. But the way I'd like to start this conversation, as mentioned at the top, this is a special, important conversation that we're having today. I've been reading a lot of news and analysis about what's been happening in particular in Tennessee. But one piece I read is from Greg Sargent, a columnist with the Washington Post. He said, the GOP-controlled Tennessee House voted late Thursday to expel two of the Tennessee three, the trio of Democratic lawmakers that had committed 
the transgression of presiding over protests at the Capitol with one wielding a bullhorn, demanding action on guns after the horrific mass shooting in a Nashville school that left six people dead, including three children. He goes on to say, at bottom, this hysterical GOP overreaction was triggered, as it were, by mass citizen dissent over the ugly realities of right-wing rule. Before the shooting, Tennessee Republicans had been weakening gun laws every which way. After it, one Republican went viral for declaring that we're not going to fix the problem, which for many protesters typified GOP pro-gun mania and helped inspire their response to it. All of this mirrors a larger story. Red states are sinking deeper into virulent far-right culture warring, banning books, limiting classroom discussion of race and gender, and prohibiting gender-affirming care for transgender youth. GOP legislatures passing these things were, of course, legitimately elected by majorities, though in some cases, gerrymanders increased their power. Oops. It's a lot. So, Quinn, Dr. E, the first question I have is, how you doing? How you coping? I, I'm going through different phases of survival mode that I didn't know existed before. And I'm really leaning heavily on community to get through this. Organizing community, but also just community that's going to make sure that everyone's actually eating and surviving in the midst of all this. Yeah, I, in these communities, I'm seeing a wide range of analysis that hopefully we'll get into in a minute. Um, but yeah. So when you say make sure everyone is eating, that's at like, talk about survival level. I don't think even like empathetic folks around the country who are watching these events fairly closely, I don't think a lot of folks would consider that. Like, okay, we're going into total survival mode. Are our friends leaving their homes? Do they feel safe leaving their homes? Are they eating? Are they okay? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, whether it's someone that's finds they have the energy one day to spend all day at the Capitol protesting or attending the different hearings or whatever it be. So often I will check in on someone at the end of the day, they're exhausted and they'll say like, oh, and I haven't eaten anything all day. Or if they have, it's needed because someone else thought of it and handed them food because they were organizing and brought a table of food down to a legislative plaza or whatever it is. And then also, yes, the piece of people not feeling safe leaving their homes, people feeling depressed and just forgetting to eat, people getting overwhelmed as they're building different types of safety plans, whether it's alerting community members to suicidal ideation or whether it's a safety plan of in this many months, I feel like I need to be out of the state. Little things like eating and drinking water and all the things that we need to survive, like go by the wayside as you're trying to survive in other ways, as you're trying to uh, survive policing and surveillance, as you're trying to survive this incitement of violence. Yeah. Dr. E. Your organization went out on faith and realized that the moment required you 
going out on faith and expending certain resources that you had financially, um, it struck me that at the end of the day, it is basic needs. There are folks who are feeling really exposed and vulnerable at a, like literally a survival level. I asked Quinn to go first because I'm trying to center the voices who are most impacted right now. And even though I am a trans Latinx, I move in the world with power access and privilege because of my skin color. I have those three little letters behind my name, the PhD, and that has afforded me access. And so I just want to say thank you, Quinn, for speaking your truth. I'm with you. I'm in conversation with roughly two dozen, maybe more than two dozen folks throughout Tennessee who are sheltering in place because of the anti-trans legislation bills, which are, they're being introduced and then they get tacked on to these bills. And so no one really knows what's being passed. So these folks who, I don't ask a lot of questions when people reach out to me. I just am present with them. I try to be a chaplain in the moment. And after the school shooting, my DMs flooded with people who were terrified. And then, of course, when the New York Post published their front page calling Aiden Hale a trans killer, I thought, great, they're weaponizing transphobia against us. And that just accelerated the fear. And this is a real existential fear that people are having right now. And I took a leap of faith and tried to disseminate mutual aid to folks. Didn't ask questions because that is not the intent. I don't need data other than you're struggling and not leaving your home and you don't have basic needs. I thought about creating a mobile food bank and then driving and getting food to folks, but the need was so great. People just needed cash. And so I acted in faith and roughly two dozen people, maybe a few more are communicating to me. They live in rural Tennessee. They don't have a lot of friends. They're not doing well. And my greatest fear, for some of these people, I'm the only person that they are in contact with. And my greatest fear is that some of these people will not see any hope and choose suicide over, over anything else. And I don't fault them if that is the case. But I'm just saying, I want people to know in as much as the Jewish people have faced anti-Semitism throughout history, and I'm not making a direct parallel, but there are some things that feel very similar right now in terms of a genocide against trans and queer people. No, the gas chambers aren't here, but there was just a shooting in Louisville, Kentucky yesterday. We are literally using military-grade weapons 
to keep people in their homes. And one of the laws that is being passed here, which I think has already been passed in Florida, is you can be arrested if you are quote unquote cross-dressing, if you do not match the gender marker on your documents. And I just had a friend over, a trans guy, whose documents don't match. And he's subject to the rule of law at this point. We are suffering, and many of us are suffering in silence. I have been trying to feed people. I fed people on Sunday night. Quinn was there. Quinn is a good cook. Quinn brought buffalo cauliflower, which was very good. But I got really emotional today, just broke down in tears, knowing that I might be the last voice over text that people experience. Yeah. When that shooting happened, the, there's a tendency, it happens with such frequency now that it's to, it's almost like there are these calluses. It's like, how do we do this again? How do I go to that well again? But there was something that penetrated those calluses on this end when discussion of the shooters, the possibility that shooter might've been trans. And my first thought was, why are we talking about that right now? Number one, we don't know. It was very quick, quick to assign those labels. Why are we talking about that right now? Are we talking, because it struck me that we don't talk that day in the sinfully frequent number of times that this is happening about a white dude who's a Christian. Right. We didn't talk about, we didn't say that yesterday about Louisville. He, yeah. We just said, or the news said he was just a white male, 23 years old. We're not calling him. A, a white domestic terrorist. That's yeah. That's why I'm bringing it up. Is like how, what were your thoughts that day? I don't know if I don't know if you can stand like getting a Hannity or a Tucker clip of him tr trans, like the just that thing that they do, that divisive thing that they do, that assigning of labels. I, I think we talked about this last time that I was on this and Quinn. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, but. This goes back to the oppositionality of language and linguistic mm. violence. I've been Here's, using that concept, that framework. It's so helpful for me to recognize oppositional politics. As long as we are stuck in an us against them framework, we will continue to perpetuate violence after violence with each other. And what were your thoughts that day when the news first broke and it's traumatic enough, but then did you hear discussion of the shooter's identity. What were your thoughts that day? Yeah. When I first heard through an unofficial channel that the shooter might've been trans. And at that point it was still even unclear whether this was a trans masculine, trans feminine, neither person. I just felt such a sense of dread in how this would be used and yeah. It was a day that I needed to, I just needed to process it. And yeah. so I went to a park and walked around and 
looked at the nature. Yeah. And it didn't make it better, but it did give me a thing to do in that time where there wasn't anything to do yet. And to get a little processing out of the way. Yeah. Read for an hour. Yeah. There are so many obstacles already, whether it's legislation that's being passed in state after state or general temperature. I saw, uh, this has nothing to do with anything, but the day that Trump was indicted, there were those two lines on different sides of the barricades. The one line that was like MAGA and supportive of Trump, the other line that was protesting against like characters like Marjorie Taylor Greene. And one of the things, one of the things that one of the dudes that was pro MAGA was yelling was like something along the lines of, there's only two, there's only two genders, two genders, only, something along the I'm like, what does that have to do with Donald Trump? Like getting arrested? Like what, why are you talking about that? And it occurred to me, like my friends, like Dr. E and some other folks, like, 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 okay, let's go to a Mets game. No, let's not go to a Mets game because somebody who's rooting against the other team might say, there's only two genders, like right. just spouting and spewing hatefulness, even where it has nothing to do with anything. So I'm wondering, there's already this tenor, this temperature in the air that's hostile to trans friends. Has there been an uptick even above that since, since this, this happened in Nashville and rumors about the shooter's identity? I would say yes. And we have seen through different channels, I'm sure Quinn has seen it too, the ways in which the far right, the far extreme right, is tagging buildings to try to communicate if you are against us, we will use violence toward you. And I'll tell you, my Muslim friends, they're in Ramadan right now, and they said, as soon as we found out about the shooting, I was praying that it wasn't one of us. And I say that to say everyone is terrified of existing gun laws and gun use. We are not at the top of the food chain. And I have been trying to mobilize the top of the food chain to give a shit mm. about us about the crucified people, about the disposed, about the underside of history. It's why I eat with people who disagree with me. It's why I think you and I should start a dinner party and travel around. The traveling supper club. Yeah, and bring people together because we're using violence as a means to an end in this country right now. We are not in relationship with one another. We don't know our neighbor. And therefore, we don't know how to love our neighbor. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's such a good point. Like, and what struck me when I was reading your bio, Quinn, that Cook was a part of theologian right next to Cook. It makes so much sense because you share a meal with someone and then it becomes a human being. Just not just some data points, not just, uh, you know, some machine that's speaking these ideas, but like a connected, embodied human being. What are some of the reasons? Is there, did you have thinking, was there 
larger thinking behind like gravitating towards cooking? Or is that something that happened and just the significance of it as you grew up and grew into your theology? I'm very intentional about that. When people ask me what my best ministry skill is, I tell them I'm a great cook. Potluck <laughs> is the best ministry I can do, better than the poems I can write, better than the sermons I can give. Feeding people is something I love to do. And knowing that people that are eating is a way that I know to care about people that's deeply rooted in my family. I've seen generations of women in my family be incredible cooks and do incredible work cooking for community members that in ways that just inspire me so much and that I got to be right next to them learning how to cook in those spaces where we're cooking for like 500 people, but it's like 10 of us. Yeah, there's something very magical about even whenever you think you have very little in the kitchen, figuring out a way to feed everyone in the apartment or to feed everyone in the space. So we not like really counteract this narrative of opposition that we're seeing because I have also seen these very extreme threats is how I would describe them. And a jockeying for power in the space to try to frighten and terrorize so many people. And I think that it's a natural conclusion of the rights tactics of saying, we're going to semi-arbitrarily, but in relation to power, pick a group to further oppress. And we're going to do it in a way that villainizes them and demonizes them and says that Christianity says they're going to hell anyway, so you don't have to love them. And by using that as a way of reinforcing a blind constituency, they're able to build power that reinforces this fascist police state that they dream of. They're able to move this further towards genocide, not just because they want to commit genocide, but as a mechanism for them to build more policing and institutional power. This colonial project of prisons and constant gun violence forces this fake need for police. And then the police showing up commit more violence that causes more violence amongst community members and thus reaffirming their own need. Which is why, like today, right now, April 11th, 4.30 to 5.30, there's a committee going on right now hearing the ending of community oversight, community oversight committees for policing in Tennessee. There were only two or three cities that had citywide police oversight committees of civilians, mostly like grandmas that were just looking at police data and saying like, oh, I think this needs an investigation. Almost no power at all. Sometimes a little social and political power to get a little stuff done. But in response to the murder of Tyree Nichols in Memphis, the state decided, no, no city can have civilians overseeing police conduct, even if it's a performative role. And so today they're really on that. 
and we have a community oversight committee here in Nashville to watch over Metro Nashville because there have been unjustified killings of black civilians in the past. And my friend, comrade, Andrew, Dr. Andrew Krinks uh, led that charge. He's done a lot around white property ownership and carceral studies. And we thought that was a big win for our community, that maybe we would have a chance to move the needle a little bit around police brutality against those who are most impacted, which are black and brown people, immigrants, trans people, and queer people. And now the state has decided to undermine local communities. So I just, I want to be really clear on what's happening here, because if you live in quote unquote, a blue state and you don't think it's coming for you, it's coming for you. It's coming for all of us. And people have been saying that for a long time, and I'm not trying to be an alarmist, but I became a theologian and an ethicist to try to steward my scholarship for collective liberation because I know the love of ideas and the love of liberation and the sense of being led by love will get us to a different society. And I'm tired of talking about things. I want us to start doing something about it, which is a Che Guevara, a twist on Che Guevara's quote. And my last and final statement, and we can move on, is whose vision are we held captive to? What kind of life are we really living? Are we living someone else's dream? Because I know a lot of people who are driving Uber, driving taxis, working at Whole Foods, working at grocery stores, working at Trader Joe's, who are not making it. Because of the incessant violence, the insidious violence, economic violence, food scarcity, police violence, institutional violence. It's coming for all of us which is why we're trying to get people mutual aid. Yeah, it makes me wonder, you said, whose vision are we living? Who, and it makes me wonder, are we still, are many of us still caught in the dream, in the vision of Queen Isabella or right. King George? I wanted to ask you both. One, would you say that your work is rooted in Christian theology? And if so, what kinds of obstacles have you faced from within the larger church as Christian theologians? Oh, that's a great question for both of us. Yeah. You want to start the thread, Quinn? Sure. Yeah. I would say my work is rooted in Christian theology, but not necessarily limited to the Christian theology presented to me from others. I think that I've been inspired by so many liberation theologians in applying their frameworks to develop my, not my, in applying their frameworks to develop frameworks that include 
as many communities as possible in looking at collective liberation. I think about James Cohn, obviously, and also people who position their frameworks outside of Christianity. I think about Angela Davis and her writings constantly and how I'm reading the Bible and then how I'm trying to love my neighbor. And how has that come up against the larger Christian church? I might push back on the idea of one larger Christian church in that there's a significant portion that wants nothing to do with me as a trans person. Some even just in not subscribing to capitalism, that's already too much for them. They don't even realize I'm trans. Yeah, in the liberal and neoliberal and progressive church, I think that I sometimes come across obstacles of people still wanting to hold on to as much of the system as possible and not really grasping what abolition can teach us in liberational theology. Looking at, okay, if the whole system is fucked, then the whole system's got to go. And that doesn't mean you can't love Jesus. And that doesn't mean you can't still go to that same building you like and sing those same songs you like. It just means as much as anything is hurting anyone, it's got to go. Yeah. One follow-up, and then obviously, Dr. E, I want to hear your thoughts on that. You've both used the term and forgive me if this is terribly ignorant of me to even ask, but you've both used the term collective liberation. Could you expound on what that means? Yeah. So from my background in abolitionist spaces, this reminds me of the chant of, oh, trying to remember exactly how it goes, but there's a chant that essentially says Black Lives Matter, and all Black Lives Matter. And you expound and talk about Black women matter, Black trans people matter, Black children matter. And there's a quote that I think goes along with it well, where Angela Davis talks about Black people everything. Any identity that is oppressed in any way, there's a Black person that holds that identity as well. When you look at immigration, you look at anti-Latinx immigration violence, there are Afro-Latinos experiencing that and experiencing anti-Black racism at the same time. If you look at transphobic violence, not only are there Black people experiencing transphobic violence, they are the majority experiencing transphobic violence in the most visible ways and the most ignored ways. And so this idea of collective liberation means we're not free till we're all free. And what that means is centering the margins and looking at every facet of liberation and oppression to seek out who we might be ignoring or forgetting every step of the way. Thank you. Thanks for that clarification. I appreciate that. Dr. E, just I'm curious about the original question. Would you say your work yeah. is rooted in Christian theology? And if so, what kind of pushback have you gotten? What kind of obstacles have you faced within the church? Yeah, I'd say the church has historically not accepted me. And people who are cis, white, and gay have historically used and disposed of me. 
but I would say my work is deeply rooted in Christian thought and practice. And I take a Jesus approach to this uh, article just came out in the nation magazine, an interview that I did with a journalist and there are some real timely and timeless truths in the story of Jesus. And I try my best to be into that and lean into that. And that is not hard work. It go it's countercultural in many respects. It's it's anti-capitalist in many respects. It's leaning into mutual aid when you know it's making a way out of no way in in many respects. But yeah, deeply compelled by the vision of Christianity and particularly the liberationist movements within Christianity to really heal the crucified people, the poor, the disenfranchised, the sex workers, the margins of the margins. That's where Jesus spent time. And that's where I've been spending time these past almost three weeks with people who are disposed of, who are the underside of history, and who are today's crucified people. You know, it's interesting. My, I've had a conversation with my dad who is increasingly observant. Some might say he's Orthodox Jewish. And he's come to this nuanced understanding of who Jesus is. Uh, as he, he doesn't, he thinks he was a Messiah candidate, but a failed Messiah candidate. And as he says, the failure wasn't his. The failure was mm. the failure of the people of his generation. But what he does say is that Jesus was a not only a rabbi, but a tzaddik, which is like the great rabbi of his generation, and also a prophet in, this, in the tradition of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Malachi. But he goes, he says, but two or 300 years later, he feels like Jesus was stolen from the Jews by Constantine. But hearing you speak, Dr. E, I feel like Jesus was stolen from a lot of marginalized yeah. people. Yeah. In, in our day, because Jesus transcends time, obviously, not obviously, but Jesus transcends time. There's people throughout time that that's speaking to that, that the nature of that is speaking to that the, not Jesus himself, but the idea of Jesus was hijacked. I wanted to flip this question upside down for a second too, because I'm curious when you are on the steps of the Capitol, when you're wearing more of your activist hat. I'm curious if other activists alongside you, ha have you faced objections or pushback about your religious faith, about that Christian theology that you're rooted in from other activists who maybe are agnostic or anti-religious or something? I would say that people push back all the time because we live in a place that is composed and compromised by white Christian supremacy. and so. If I wear my clergy shirt and a stole, there, there are questions and there are suspicions. And then there are people who are more socialist oriented who are down. And so it's a both and here. Yeah. I have a different experience just in that I think 
I'm often like clocked as a trans woman in these spaces and people that are protesting alongside me are often interested or even excited that I'm mostly affiliated, but also I'm not the one that's rude to the witches or disrespecting other people's religious affiliation space. The only people that are ever really vocally mad about me showing up as a Christian in the space is usually the alt-right Christian who are showing up to scream Bible verses at people and then decide that they need to scream at me and saying that, no, you're not a Christian. And that's not really a relevant point, but <laughs> yeah. It reveals a lot about themselves that they think God can't be there for everyone. I wonder if folks like that realize that they look a heck of a lot more like the Sadducees than they do right. like Jesus or the disciples. Right. Not necessarily the Pharisees. I have a heart for the Pharisees. This is going way off track, but <laughs> I like the Pharisees. Because that, that to me just reminds me of breakfast after Yom Kippur around the table, just like talking about the service. And if you've ever seen two Jews having a conversation we're always yelling at each other. Yeah. I could be the only Jew in the room and I'll still have, I'll still be arguing with myself. <laughs> but so the Pharisees, the way Pharisees and Jesus talked to each other, I felt, I feel like Jesus identified with the Pharisees, but the Sadducees were like, no, this is my temple. This is my yeah. place. You're coming yeah. in. This is my, I, we own it. <laughs> yeah. They looked a lot more like the Christopher Columbus and the conquistadors, yep. Sadducees. But well, that, and I think the Sadducees, sat in this position where they were a colonized people that were working for the empire. That's and interesting. As someone that's not Jewish, I'm not one to critique that approach. I will say when yeah. I see trans people acquiescing to empire and policing, I'm deeply disappointed in them. Oh boy. I feel like we've only touched the surface. We haven't even scratched the surface, but I do want to ask you and make sure that we cover this, Dr. E, what is the, I meant, I alluded to it earlier in the conversation that you went out on faith and kind of um, used the resources that you have just to care for people's needs now. Yeah. Uh, so you're doing a, you're doing a push to replenish those funds so that you can continue doing the work that you do. Right. T tell us about that work. Tell us how people can find it and participate, whether it's financially or otherwise. Yeah. So I went out on faith and just started giving mutual aid to folks and I was being led by love and indignation at every injustice and just got, while we were recording, just got another donation of $1,800. And oh, so wow. that brings us to about $3,500 and we need another $6,300. Okay. And if I'm just doing quick math here, if 63 people, 64 people, it's 63.49. If 64 people gave $100, we'd be golden and we can continue this work. And I think what I feel compelled to do and obviously I need to talk to the team and everybody else, but I feel compelled to turn Activist Theology Project into a mutual aid organization 
and start get really start meeting the tangible needs for people. And if you want to be one of those 63.49 people who gives a hundred dollars, you can get more than a hundred. If you want to, it's tax deductible. You can write that off. If that's important to you, just go to activisttheology.com forward slash give activisttheology.com forward slash give. And, and there's one T in between, right? Activist. Yeah. So uh, activist theology, but the T is shared by activist and theology. Yeah. So maybe Corey can put those. I will. Yeah. That link in the chat or in the show notes. But yeah, we'd love to see 63 more people show up. And really, I don't ask a lot of questions. If people are in need, I give. And yeah. we need to become what's happening to the social fabric, the social welfare fabric of our world is compromised right now by supremacy culture. And this whole pull yourself up by your bootstraps has never worked and it is not working now. And we're trying to get help to those in rural Tennessee who are isolated. And let me just say again, who are sheltering in place. They are not leaving their homes. And I have been in contact with Quinn and some other folks of just trying to get the word out. But like, I live paycheck to paycheck. I don't yet have rent money for next month, right? So we are all struggling. And I feel led to continue to give mutual aid because that's the right thing to do in this moment. So I just want to clarify, because I was going to ask you how those resources are put to use. But I also had another question about, you use the term community care. So yeah. what is community care? What does that look like in Nashville during a time like your community's had over the last few weeks? So it looks like bringing food to Legislative Plaza. For me, it looks like cooking for folks and having folks over who need a break. Community care has also looked like me doing a lot of pastoral care and chaplain support over phone, FaceTime, and text. And then with regards to the funds, I don't ask questions. I just give abundantly. And if people like if people need rent money or if people need food or tampons or hormones, we're talking about real basic shit here that people mm. are in need of. Amen. Amen. I have a few other questions, but Quinn, Quinn Joy, <laughs> do you have any on any of your professors as you're studying for your MDiv refer to you if you get in trouble? Quinn Joy. <laughs> Oh, that would be so fun if they did. I think so far they're just so excited where I get into the type of trouble they like to market to the incoming class. <laughs> well, speaking know, of trouble, good, good. yeah, good trouble, good trouble. I am just, I want to print out your poetry and I'm looking forward to when you're going to be published because that's going to be. It's going to go alongside some of my favorite poets. Wendell Berry comes to mind, but just good contemplative stuff. Like it's so well, beautifully crafted. You're like a sculptor with words. So I appreciate that. Would you mind reading, and I'll read if you don't want to, but the one that seems like it, it fits within what we're talking about today is Prayer of a Freedom Dream 2, Radical Imagination. You know the one I'm referring to? Yeah. Yeah, I'd be happy to read it. 
God, we ask you to liberate our imaginations. Help us imagine a world without cops or prisons where there are consequences for harm, but no carceral punishments. Where property isn't defended with a gun or threat of a cage. Where profit and money are irrelevant. Where abundance of supply inspires abundance of community enjoyment. Where surplus isn't thrown away, but is redistributed. Where there's block parties every time the supermarket reaches expiration dates where there's no need to make a lower quality version to save money, where businesses have ultra plush tissues and toilet paper, where loitering doesn't exist, where you can exist in any space without buying something, where housing is a human right, where education and medicine are free, available, abundant, where academia and all spaces no longer reproduce white supremacy, colonialism, and ableism, where the church isn't above criticism or accountability, where land back has established global indigenous sovereignty, where the world is resonant with human love and not exploitation, where no one is stressed about surviving and everyone has time for their loved one. God, Help us not only imagine this world, but work towards it. Amen. 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 Well, before, <laughs> it's still like, it's kind of like a soup that I, I want, I just want to let it sit. But uh, is there, before we start to wrap, is there anything important I forgot to ask you that you want to make sure that we include? I want to hear more poetry from right? Quinn. <laughs> Thank you. One call I would put out, I have some roots in Dallas still, and I don't know if people are aware of this, but in the Dallas community, this is really something painful right now. An infant, a black infant named Mila Jackson was stolen from her parents by CPS and the police. And within... A day or two, they had proven that it was just a false claim and everything should have been put back to normal. They never even should have taken that child with what they were alleging, but they have yet to return that baby to her home. So if you have capacity to call Dallas CPS or you can look to the AFIA Center for any other calls to action, relating to the baby Mila Jackson, who is, I think, just three weeks old now and missing from our home. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thanks. A more specific question, just to really zero in on something, a larger project that we're trying to do here at TPNR. What do you think each of us can do to be able to share space with, to have better conversations with, and perhaps even nurture relationships with people across our differences. Like people who think differently than we do, people who look different than we do, people have different beliefs than we do, who get their news from different sources than we do. How can we do better at (laughs) talking politics and religion without killing each other? Or is it even possible? I think it's what you've been modeling, Corey, which is leading with curiosity and asking questions. You ask Quinn, I've heard you use this phrase before. What do you mean by collective liberation? 
because I think that terms get tossed around and people just make assumptions. We know what that means. And let us slow down with one another. That's why I have dinner with people. You can't rush through dinner. <laughs> Especially you Katsuya. Take... Can't rush right. through Katsuya. <laughs> right. You got to take your time. So I think leading with curiosity, eating with one another, taking time to slow down and feel into the moment. I want folks to feel into how would you feel if you were isolated in your home and sheltering in place? How would you feel if you had no other contact but like one person hours away that you could text with? One person that we helped is Jewish, didn't have money for Passover. So we sent mutual aid so they could have Passover. That shit matters. Yeah. Shit matters. Yeah. What do you think, Quinn? What, how can we do this better? Yeah. I think, uh, first of all, it's something that you have to do as relates to your own safety. This is, if I, if you hear anything I say, I'm not telling trans Jewish people to have dinner with Nazis. Uh, what I am saying is when you make a commitment to be in community with someone, make that a commitment to be in community with them and to walk with them through the ways that they may or may not be causing harm with different beliefs or practices and to not make them disposable in your life over a disagreement, but to say, I love and care about this person because I'm in community with them. And part of being in community with them means we need to talk about the way your belief on this is causing harm, even if you don't hold any power over it. We need to talk about that. Yeah, just slowly but surely chipping away these assumptions that we've held, that we've learned, and we haven't looked outside of those assumptions ever because we haven't been in conversation with folks right. across our differences. Uh, but a, a new concept for me is uh, the idea of accepting. And someone challenged that idea because accepting assumes that I own the territory and I am accepting you onto my territory rather than other words at least get us a little bit closer to what it should be. Affirming, celebrating, I don't know, just meeting each other on mutual ground that I'm not the owner of this ground. Mm -hmm. It's a idea or a piece of property or anything. So acceptance, I don't know if that's sufficient, but yeah, y'all got me thinking. Any questions for me? Well, when are we going to hit the road with our dinner supper club? Because you're going to make this happen. You well, are speaking it into existence. <laughs> listen, I think we are two very different people who have found each other and who are curious. And that is a recipe for success when it comes to thought liberation, bodily liberation, religious liberation, and I think there's something there. And it's just like last time I was on where people made a whole bunch of assumptions. Yeah. yeah. And okay. they were like the guys that there were a couple guys in particular who were just like coming out swinging. And they were they were, they were making assumptions about you. Like, I think they were reacting out of the assumption that they were being excluded from something 
or they have been written out of a story of some sort without even articulating it that way. And you're like, but they're attacking you. They're attacking, like, even the Latinx part. Like, your response was like, hey, let's go grab some drinks. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Let's have some supper together. Let's sit down and get to know each other. I so love I it. think I think we should do it, and I th- I think people would buy a ticket to that. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, what do you think, Quinn? What uh, do you have any questions for me? Oh, I just want to know when that's happening. I would try <laughs> to be present or up on the Zoom. You did mention you won't turn my cooking, so I'll need to know your dietary restrictions at some point. <laughs> I have a very serious dietary restriction, and it's like a political objection. It is a political objection. What are those little green leafy things that some people like? And I just, I think that it's evil. I think that this, what is it again? Oh man. Cilantro? Is this cilantro? Cilantro. I think cilantro should be illegal. (laughs) You're the soap gene? (laughs) Or do you just not like the actual flavor? That's the, that's my dietary restriction. I used to keep kosher when I was a kid, but I, I, I don't keep kosher anymore. But I'm trying to think if there's anything... Yeah, other than cilantro comes to mind, but I, to me, it's I, I feel it at a theological level. I could probably make a theological case as to why we need to start banning cilantro. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> All right, so before we go, how can people find more information about you and the work that you're doing? Dr. E, why don't you start then, Quinn, if you yeah, like. Yeah, so our website right now is activisttheology.com. We are switching it over to Our Collective Becoming. And if you go to ourcollectivebecoming.com, that's where you'll see my Substack. And eventually we're going to marry the two. And so you go to one spot and you can read my Substack and then also read about the work that we're doing. But right now they're separate. And if you want to give, that's activisttheology.com forward slash give. And we just need 63 more people to give $100. I don't know, maybe you're Quinn, folks, your people in Dallas, maybe they'll be some of the 63 folks. Corey, maybe some of your listeners will be some of the 63 folks. Yeah, we'd love to have you looped into our work. So certainly sign up for the Substack if you want to. You can sign up for free or become a paying member. And what we're going to do with that community is for paying subscribers, turn it into a community. This is maybe, Corey, where we could do some work together. Offer I want to offer exclusive audio to paying subscribers and get people in conversation with one another and really get curious about how we get free. Good stuff. Quinn, how can we find more about the work that you're doing? Oh, I'm not doing a lot of public work currently. So if you want, you can just keep a lookout for in case I ever go very public. People look out for my name, but in the meantime, give the mutual aids, show up for one another and show up whenever stuff is popping off. You might run into me. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. All right. That sounds good. That sounds good. All right. Well, I appreciate you both taking the time. I know this is a hard time for a lot of folks and your voices are so important and I know are healing. They're doing the work of Tikkun Olam. So I appreciate you being here and I appreciate visiting with you today. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah. And as always, you know the drill, folks. If you dig what we're doing here, again, I'm just not going to go into it today. It just feels different. But the whole subscribe, rate and view, all that stuff. But most important, just go talk some politics, religion, important stuff. Do it with gentleness and respect and have a great week. (laughs) 